Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. It's your host, Courtney Barriger, and this is Environmental Style Now, the A to Z podcast on all that is sustainable fashion, coming to you live today from Acumal, Mexico. Wow. I'm just so lucky to get to travel so much. Anyway, on this episode, I'm with Ethan Brown, comedian, scientist, and podcast extraordinaire, bringing together the genre of climate change and comedy and this lighthearted conversation about sustainability and fashion. Hey everybody, it's Courtney Barriger, and this is ES Now. Humor makes us human. It simplifies complex ideas and just makes everything a little bit more relatable. And that is why I am delighted to host scientist and comedian and man after John Oliver's own heart, Ethan Brown of the climate change podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. We're going to be talking about some of the deep ironies of the eco-fashion world and getting into Biden's congressional win for climate policy. Let's jump right in. Hello. Hello. Sorry about that. All good. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump right in. Tell me about the sweaty penguin. How did you get started? And um, what's your background in sustainability? Sure. So the sweaty penguin is a comedy climate podcast I host. It is presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise, and we're trying to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. So my background, I did a dual degree at Boston University in environmental analysis and policy and film and television. I graduated a year ago in May, and I think that going back into, like, high school, even when I first learned about climate change, it was just really overwhelming, really stressful. And it was hard to find it interesting because of that. And that really, I ended up studying it in college, kind of forcing myself at first, because it just seemed so important. But once I kind of took the time to learn about it, I realized that there were maybe better ways of communicating it to allow other people such as my younger self to be able to engage more easily. And that's kind of the inspiration for the podcast. Yeah, you are, I think, right on the money um, with that. I, I had an experience um, teaching a class in college once, and it was about sustainability and fashion. And halfway through, I just felt that every single person in the room felt like a total asshole. <laughs> and, that, and that wasn't the point. <laughs> that wasn't the point. I was trying to inform them, but I was like, man, okay, I gotta, I gotta change my method here. So I think that that's just so great um, what you're doing. Uh, walk me through an episode. What, what's the structure? What does it feel like? So we do two different types of episodes. Um, on Fridays, which we've been doing since uh, 2020, we do our deep dives. Has to be a penguin pun, obviously. So each episode, we pick a specific environmental topic. 
I'll do a comedy monologue sort of loosely inspired by John Oliver, Hassan Minaj, but also different in a number of ways. And we'll break down what the issue is, how it affects not just the environment, but also the economy, health, justice, etc. And then we'll talk about some different solutions. And rather than necessarily advocating for one or saying we have to do X, Y, Z, I'll present a bunch of options and discuss the pros and cons so our listeners can really think for themselves about what they think might be a good idea. Then in the second segment, we'll interview a professor who researches the subject. And we've had on professors from, I believe, 15 countries and all six continents, um, had some really cool people on. On Wednesdays, which we started a few months ago, we do a more newsy, shorter show called Tip of the Iceberg. So I'll do another comedy monologue, give some context to whatever the big climate news story of the week was. And then in the second segment, I answer a question from an audience member. And I really love answering people's questions. So if any of you have questions uh, about climate or sustainability or anything like that, uh, who are listening to this, please feel free to reach out. We love answering questions on the show. Oh, that is so cool. I have questions about sustainability. Me, 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 me. Um, <laughs> so I, uh, my passion in the whole angle of, you know, how to fix the climate um, is in fashion and sustainability. Um, I do try to do mm -hmm. a little bit of all of it. And, you know, I, I can't afford an electric car yet, but I will soon. Um, and I, you know, do all the other things that I can and eat organic and compost and stuff like that. Um, but what are some things in sustainability and fashion that you have learned in your journey as, you know, an awesome scientist and, and what kind of surprised you and shocked you? Yeah, so we did an episode on fast fashion. Uh, it was actually episode 16, and we're now on episode 95 this week to give you a sense of how long ago it was. Whoa! But it was definitely a, yeah, but it was definitely a really eye-opening one and one that stuck with me. I pulled up the script again today and was like, whoa, I, this is this is something. So, yeah, I'm sure you've heard many of the numbers already, but the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of global carbon emissions, 20% of global water pollution, and in the U.S., it's outpacing the growth of every other major waste stream category. Largely, that's due to fast fashion, which is possibly one of the most inefficient <laughs> things I've seen in doing all of these episodes. It's uh, just to create a cheaper product at the time of purchase um, using lower quality fabrics. You're creating much uh less sturdy products and then you buy it cheap but you wear it three times run it through the wash and it's disintegrated and then you have to buy like eight more of them whereas if you just had one quality shirt you could probably end up saving money in the long run so it really is one of those issues that is a great example of how the environment and uh, the economy be it globally or just our personal uh, pocketbooks are very often aligned. Um, some of the other stuff that stuck out to me is in talking about solutions to 
these fashion issues. I think there's a lot of interesting conversations there. Um, so we'll talk about like recycling clothing and that's a big challenge because a lot of clothes are made with a blend of fabrics. Mm. So it won't just be cotton or just be polyester. It might have both. It might have other stuff in there and to recycle it, you have to be able to separate those things and you can't easily do that. Um, and so that's, definitely a challenge in terms of trying to create more of a closed loop supply chain where you're not having to create new material all the time. Uh, the other one that stuck out was with donating clothes. I think a lot of people feel like they're, um, by donating clothes, it gets another life for sure. And that's great. But actually a lot of clothes don't get a second life. We were finding that a large portion of the clothes that are donated will get put on boats and delivered by the ton to countries in Africa who don't need that many clothes. <laughs> and so there are places in Africa where they're just burning up piles of oh clothes. My, that oh my gosh. Yeah. And so it's certainly just important to understand that and to say, um, like, there are certainly paths forward here, but we need to kind of understand that we these solutions have nuance. It's not just as simple as saying, oh, I donated it to Goodwill, so I did my part. Like, we want to understand the full scope of these solutions. Oh, it's like a rabbit hole that just ends in a dirty mud pile or something. <laughs> it's the kind of rabbit hole you don't want to go down. Um, yeah. Man, yeah, well... It is, I mean, yes, the fashion industry overall, it's pretty ugly to look at. Um, I, when I was looking at your website and like, you've got some funny cartoons on there, like the little fire that could, you know, the fire burning in Colorado <laughs> in the winter. Yep. And I'm just like, what can make fashion, fast fashion funny to get people's attention, to change ideas, but like, I don't know, not be too on the nose. I don't know. The fashion industry is, takes itself very seriously. Um, so I'm wondering, how could we make that funny? Yeah, one of my favorite things we did when we did that episode that I actually found again maybe a couple weeks ago and. Um, I think we might try to repost it on TikTok during the next fashion week. But we had made a video of, uh, it was like a catwalk. And um, at the time, our sound editor, Frank Hernandez, had done a voiceover where he was like talking about the clothes. But he was like, check out this denim jean jacket at 6,000 gallons of water, per, like <laughs> running off statistics about the impact of the clothes that they were wearing as they were walking down. Um, and I thought that was just such a funny video. Um, within the episode itself, though, I mean, a lot of our humor comes from not necessarily directly about the topic, although there is a bit of that, but we'll also just try to fit in pop culture references, fit in observational humor, like kind of um, just wherever a joke might 
fit in, that we can make a funny analogy, that sort of thing. And I think that that format has really been able to apply to every single issue we've talked about. Certainly, I can tell you that fast fashion was not a particularly difficult episode to make funny (laughs) as compared to some other issues. Because, I mean, clothes are, it's part of our life. We think about it all the time. There's a lot of humor there. Oh my gosh, talking about funny runway videos. I keep getting hit with these like TikTok videos of people doing the, the you know, catwalk, but they're, I don't know, maybe in the Philippines. This guy, he's like, but he's like just carrying furniture and like draping it over his head and just doing this catwalk with a very serious face. Like, it's true. Fashion is so ridiculous. It is so, so ridiculous, especially that end of it. Um, I was even thinking of like funny t-shirts, but like, that's a little bit, I don't know, like busted planet. It's Mars or bust or just, I don't know. Silly. Yeah. I saw, I forget which brand it was, but there was a fast fashion brand that recently put out a new line of clothing that had messages about climate change and sustainability on the shirts. And And it's like, really? This is what we're doing. Oh my gosh, that is so... At least make a dirty shirt if that's what you're going to do. Oh my gosh, the irony. Ugh, I can't. Oh, that's so great. I mean, in like a bad way. Great, in a terrible way. Yeah. Um, yeah. If we can put a more optimistic spin on this, though, what at least I've found in my life, because, I mean, you were talking about all these different actions that you're taking, I personally don't think of myself as doing quite as much on the individual level. I think my, um, what I feel I can have the most impact with is doing my podcast, getting information out there and, um, all that. But what I do do without even trying per se is not buy fast fashion really, and not like throw out a shirt after wearing it a couple times like I'll wear my shirt for as long as it fits and doesn't have holes in it and then if it does get a hole in it I'll make it a pajama shirt and that like I have shirts still from like high school and (laughs) I think that that's a very simple thing I guess that if you're not a big fashion person where you need to keep up with every trend you can save yourself a lot of money doing that honestly the main reason I do that Um, But then also you happen to be using less resources and helping the climate and the environment in that small way. So that kind of solution really excites me because you're saving money (laughs) and you're also helping out. And there's actually a lot more of that than people may realize. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful way of looking at it. I mean, that is like a pacifist way of like solving this issue. Like, you know what? I'm just not going to do anything i'm not going to participate and that is one actually solid solid solution um i remember growing up like and being a teenager and paris hilton was a big deal at the time and she made this comment back then and it was i never wear the same outfit twice and i remember thinking to myself how cool that must be And, you know, that 
is just the kind of brainwashing that I had to uh, completely undo um, to get into a, a healthier mindset about buying things. Um, yeah. And I've known people who actually do that or close to it. And I, I fully respect if if you're passionate about fashion and you like to keep up with trends and you, um, even like I know for a lot of people, shopping is genuinely a hobby or a way to decompress or like, that's fine. I think if you're aware of what you're doing, if you're actually paying the full cost of your clothing, because the other piece of this is all of the <laughs> child labor around the world that drives these prices down, um, so if you're finding brands that you can feel confident about the product that they're giving you and, you know, like we can have this conversation, but I think that people ultimately do like you can make your own choices and that's fine because a lot of these issues have to be dealt with at a more systemic level. Mm. At the same time, though, when we talk about fast fashion purposely making it so that there's a new trend every single week of the year, then we're getting into a problem because people shouldn't feel pressured to do this. I think if you want to, then by all means, but certainly there should be no judgment if you choose to wear something that was in style in 2018 or whatever. I, I honestly am not as big an expert on the style part, but I can... I think that's safe to say. I think it is safe to say. And, you know, I, I want to be optimistic. I think the world is actually catching on. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, more than ever, I've seen even big fashion houses, you know, saying, oh, we're not using animal skin anymore. We're only going to use this and this. And I know that some of it is definitely greenwashing. Um but maybe it's not the worst because at least it's getting it into the conversation. Yeah. I think that there's definitely progress being made. I think people are more aware of this issue. Brands are certainly doing some greenwashing, but they, I mean, they get caught when they do that. <laughs> there's always investigations into these things and, Certainly, the, a lot of the human rights violations are starting to come to the fore, which honestly, a lot of them are because these brands will contract to factories in other countries and not necessarily know the details of the factory. And so I don't, I can't speculate, but I remember when doing the episode, it didn't seem clear that these brands were necessarily aware of everything that was going on. I think from the perspective of a brand, you do not want child labor in your supply chain <laughs> because that's going to be a big scandal when that comes out. So, I mean, you can see why, like from, even for these companies, they, it's in their best interest to do things ethically and to do things more sustainably. And you can, you can get away with a little greenwashing maybe, but I, I think people are catching on to what's going on with fast fashion and want to see improvement. You know, it's interesting because I always think of, yes, like, okay, manufacturing happening overseas. 
I had an experience working in Los Angeles one time that was very fishy. Um, yeah, you have this big manufacturing spot. I mean, mid-size, like they could, they could do 20,000 units. So pretty big. And when I went to go pick up my order, they said it was somewhere completely different and that it wasn't even there. I'm like, what do you mean? And I started to become suspicious that they were maybe sending it to Mexico because it's just right there. And then, you know, pocketing a little extra, but I didn't, I mean, at the time I was kind of lazy, so I didn't like get down to the bottom of it, but like I was definitely suspicious. So it happens here too. And, and I wonder if, you know, some sort of regulation were in place where you, I don't know, where you actually got to see where things are being made or you had to go and see, there had to be some kind of quality control or third party, um, like a requirement. Not not just a not just a do gooder attitude, but a requirement. Yeah, one very simple thing that could be done, and I think is um, either starting to happen or being discussed. And again, I don't like advocate specific policies per se, but just to put an option on the table, you can basically tell brands that they have to be transparent about their supply chain, where everything came from, where it went through, all of that information, whether or not there was child labor, hopefully not. (laughs) Um, So you you can require that they just give that information. And that's a somewhat small step. It's something that the brands may not have yet and need to go get. But what that does is just give the information to customers to allow them to make an informed decision. And from the perspective of like, even just talking from a capitalism perspective, that's a fundamental piece of how a free market is supposed to operate is that consumers have full information about the product they're buying so they can make an informed decision. If they don't have that right now, then it's not a free market. So that even like it sounds like a regulation, but it's actually just trying to preserve the freedom for people to make their decisions. And at the same time could have a major impact because these companies would have to figure out their supply chain. And then they'd have to, if there was child labor in it, I'd think they'd try to get rid of that pretty quickly. If that information is going to be public and, um, and then people can make a better decision. Obviously, you can get a lot more intense than that if you want to. You can say no child labor. You can say you need to do X, Y, Z with these fabrics or you need to um, reduce emissions in this way. Or you, you, There's a number of ways you can go. But I think even that small baby step could be something that could make a big difference. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of government regulation, I... <laughs> I have to admit, I'm a little bit behind in the news. So I know that Biden either just got something through Congress or is just trying to get something through Congress about climate and maybe tax. Can you fill me in on that, what you know? Sure. So I've got to do a little more research. I'm trying to like let all the 
hot take op-eds go out so then I can just take it all <laughs> in at once and figure out how I want to address it myself. But basically um, the Senate or the Democrats in the Senate have behind closed doors agreed to terms on what I believe they're calling the Inflation Reduction Act, which would put somewhere in the $300 billion range of investment into uh, clean energy and other climate-related priorities. They also would be putting some money into healthcare. They'd be doing some stuff with taxes, as you mentioned. I don't know the full details of this bill, but basically what they were trying to do is actually tackle inflation while putting in these investments. And that is something that takes a little bit of nuance to do, right? Because if the government is investing money into different sectors, you would think that would grow inflation and mm. just be putting more money into the economy. But they're trying to, I believe through taxes or something, trying to make it even out where they're putting in money, but they're also getting back money. The program, I think it's supposed to pay for itself. Don't quote me on that. But, yeah, I think that the idea of combining inflation with climate is a very intriguing one, because if you think about the biggest driver of inflation right now has been gas prices in the U.S. Hmm. Gas prices have been through the roof, and that's um, for a number of reasons. But to create more alternatives to that um, through not just um, electric cars, but you can talk about um, public transit, you can talk about bikes, you can talk about just, even, I don't know if this is part of what they're doing, but even something like improving broadband internet access in rural <laughs> communities can allow more people to work from home, which means they don't have to drive as much. Mm. There's a lot of things that you can do to create alternatives to needing gasoline that then would lower the demand for gasoline, which would bring the prices down. And if you structure that very well, then you might be able to reduce inflation while putting money into another sector. We can have that same conversation for like food is another big one. And food has actually been very much affected by extreme weather over the last year. That's part of the reason why there's been some food shortages. So mm -hmm. yeah, lots of different elements to this, but you can see how if you're really strategic about it, there are ways to address inflation and address climate change at the same time. I think that's pretty exciting. And I think that um, while I haven't gotten into the details of this particular policy, I'm sure there's a lot of pros and cons to it, but I do think it was cool that they decided to combine these two priorities. Yeah, that's so cool. It's sort of like, um, I don't know, creating national parks and creating jobs too at the same time. It's like two wonderful exactly. things. Uh, it makes me think, okay, so if they're limiting fossil fuel, maybe they're like offshore drilling or stuff like that and, and leases of land or, or what have you. Um, the fossil fuel industry does definitely impact the fashion industry, given that the biggest you know, fabric that we're working with these days is polyester. So mm -hmm. there could be an interesting trickle-down effect in the fashion industry. 
be interesting to watch. Yeah, we'll have to see. Obviously, polyester is a fossil fuel product, and also it requires fossil fuels to produce clothes in general, or at least requires energy. And I think that, yeah, we'll we'll have to see what happens. Also, obviously, the transportation of clothing would require fossil fuels. So, yeah, I'd be curious to see as well. Thank you for explaining that. I, uh, like I said, I've been behind, um, but I kept seeing in these like little bits of headlines. I'm like, ooh, climate. Ooh, okay, Congress. Okay, this looks good. <laughs> Last week was a big week of climate news. Actually, that that's the main reason why I'm not as uh, well versed on this particular story. I had to kind of make a choice between like six different major stories last week to cover. And the one that got zero attention, which shocked me, is the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution last week declaring that access to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment is a universal human right. Mm. And 161 countries voted in favor. There were eight abstentions, no no's. Like this, that's a big deal. And yeah, so the fact that that wasn't front page news, I was like, what? I saw it from having, doing the work I do. I have a lot of colleagues in international relations who I follow on Twitter. And so a couple of them had posted about it and I was like, whoa, really? And then I looked at the UN website and yep, this happened. And actually this scour to find actual news stories about it. And what I think got to me is global governance is a very complicated thing because there's no global enforcement mechanism. Countries can do whatever they want. And certainly if you piss off other countries, they have ways to, they can shame you, they can sanction you. Worst case scenario, that can lead to wars and conflict. But Certainly, there's no way for globally to say every country has to do X, Y, Z. So declaring a universal human right is largely symbolic, but it sets forth priorities. So countries might say, all right, we just did this. We want to follow through and make policy at home. It can lead the UN to now be able to say, all right, do you need help uh, protecting this human right? If so, we can help you. Um, So there's things like that. But what I think the biggest thing with human rights is, is its ability to raise awareness on a topic. If you think about things like Darfur, things like Coney Mm. 2012, Mm -hmm. like these were human rights violations that became international top news stories. And people, that's a great framework for a news outlet or anyone really to be like, there's a human rights violation going on in X country in the world. So now we can talk about um, infringement on people's right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment as a human rights violation, which is that's big. And the fact that this wasn't top news kind of just got to me. So it's like that, that's really the potential here. And hopefully that changes soon. Wow. I think if these journalists really catch on, um, yeah. I mean, they're, they, it, being able to call it a 
violation of human rights is, I mean, that is headline news, so. Yeah, and in all fairness, it was a big climate leak. There were deadly floods in Kentucky, the largest wildfire in California of the year, still deadly heat waves around the world. Um, obviously, this Inflation Reduction Act, so not trying to throw my colleagues under the bus or anything. I just want to, <laughs> from a <laughs> supportive perspective, say, check out this news story. This is this is a big one. That was why I chose to focus on that one for tomorrow's Tip of the Iceberg episode. Oh, yeah. No, good call. Very good call. Um, to kind of swing the topic here, if I were to, or any of my listeners were to, um, check out your podcast, what do you think would be a good episode? Like what's your favorite episode or just something that you think just is like stands out to check out for the first time? Sure. So I'll give you my favorite episode, then I'll give you maybe the most important episode. Uh, my favorite one at this point was about a month or so ago, our episode on bees. I think that it came out really well. I was really proud of just a lot of what our team was able to do internally, but the episode I think was really eye-opening. Um, a lot of the issues with bees are a bit more nuanced than people might realize. It's not just one pesticide that's the cause of <laughs> bee collapses. Actually, there's uh, it really varies depending on what pesticides you're talking about, but there's other issues from infestations to perhaps the biggest one, is climate change and that seems to never come up when we talk about bees so that was interesting then there was also a whole conversation about um first off all of the every year in the central valley of california so california grows 80 percent of the world's almonds and almonds are a plant that requires cross-pollination um, so it requires honeybees to deliver pollen between the plants. And since California's almond industry is so big, it takes up an area of land the size of Delaware. You need a lot of bees to pollinate these plants. So every year for about six months, or sorry, for about six weeks, the California almond industry pays to bring like almost all of the bees in the United States out to the Central Valley of California to pollinate their almonds. And on the one hand, for beekeepers, it's a much needed source of revenue because there's also a lot of issues going on in the honey industry that are giving them the short end of the stick. And the almond industry can kind of make up some of that revenue. But at the same time, if you bring all of the bees to <laughs> one area, They'll spread diseases. They'll often come in contact with pesticides. And oh my gosh, we're, and we, been... we only have almond honey. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's also been like over two thousand um, hive heists where other beekeepers will steal people's bees mm. in the Central Valley. <laughs> so yeah, it's this fascinating issue. I mean, it's weird to say fascinating about a problem, but like it was really, really eye-opening. And so I found that episode really interesting and I think uh, people should check it out. The one that I think is most 
important to listen to is actually an episode of Tip of the Iceberg. It was episode 16 on carbon bombs. So I guess I should ask, did you by chance come across the Guardian's carbon bomb investigation back in May? No, I didn't. I feel like I'm missing out. Yeah, so this was, speaking of climate news stories that did not get nearly as much coverage as they deserved, the Guardian basically, they were curious about what future oil and gas exploration and production was planned. And that obviously isn't publicly available data. The companies who do this work know what they've got planned. Um, But The Guardian did a five-month investigation, basically using up all their contacts and gathering this data. And so they got it all. And what they specifically looked at were projects called carbon bombs, which would be a oil or gas project that over the course of its lifetime would emit over a billion tons of carbon dioxide. So for context, in 2019, the entire world emitted 59 billion tons of carbon dioxide. Hmm. So a billion tons from one project is a lot. Hmm. And what The Guardian found is that the 12 big fossil fuel companies in the world have planned 195 carbon bombs around the world, Hmm. which together would emit 646 billion tons of carbon dioxide which would be enough to just that blow past the global climate goals and the Paris Agreement. So that's a big deal. Also, these companies are investing, I believe it was $387 million per day for the rest of the decade into these projects to make them happen. So yeah, that was that was a lot. And even for me, as someone who works to make climate change less overwhelming, <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> I was kind of pacing around angrily for a little bit there. But, um, but yeah, so we did that episode, which kind of broke down the story. And I think that week I was still kind of trying to process myself. But what we ended up doing, which I'm really thrilled about and proud of, And I hope that people can take something from it. What I think the whole podcast of The Sweaty Penguin has done well from the beginning is take climate change kind of topic by topic. And that in and of itself makes it a little less overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Like we're not going to talk about all of climate change today. We'll talk about bees or we'll talk about fashion or we'll talk about chocolate or whatever. I think that kind of makes us, grounds us a little bit and we can talk about it, look at solutions, see there's actually some interesting nuance and some cool stuff there, and then move to the next topic. So I decided let's take that same approach with these carbon bombs. Let's just go one by one. And so that's what we've been doing. So we did our first one of these on the Gawar oil field in Saudi Arabia a few weeks ago. I think that was a really interesting episode talking about some of the dynamics there. This is the largest oil field in the world. It's largely operated by Saudi Aramco, which is uh, not just the largest fossil fuel company in the world, but has now passed Apple to be the largest company in the world, period. (laughs) And um, 
but it was interesting because Saudi Arabia is also a country that at the current rate of climate change would be uninhabitable by 2070. And <laughs> so for them, it's a question of, all right, we, they need climate change to get addressed too. And so there's actually a really interesting conversation about is uh, being in the desert, is solar power something that could be a really lucrative investment for them? And not just for financial reasons, but also just to preserve the country and be able to stay there. So that, that was a really interesting one. This week, we've got one on the Haynesville Shale in Louisiana. And we're basically intending to do a new carbon bomb episode every three weeks, looking at different sites and talking about the nuances and the potential solutions for each one. So I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're doing this. I think that um, it's a really important story, and I think that taking them one by one has given so many more insights that are just impossible to really think through when you've got a list of 195 projects on a spreadsheet in front of you and see those final numbers. Yeah, that's just overwhelming. You will have things to talk about for a very long time and a lot of research to do. Oh, yeah. When I first started the podcast, people were like, oh, do you think you'll run out of topics? I was like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not even a little. I'm like, I'm doing just one of the topics that you brought up, and I haven't run out of topics yet. So that just yeah. goes to show, I mean, you could probably do an entire podcast on bees alone. Oh, of course. Man. Just crazy. Um, is there anyone in your field whose work that you admire? It could be a scientist or a comedian, comedian scientist. That's a good question. So I think in terms of what do I want to talk about, one person that I really admire, not in the climate space, um, he's a television writer, creator, producer, uh, Michael Schur. So he created The Good Place. He created Parks and Recreation. He was a producer on The Office, where he also played Moe's, Dwight's cousin. Um, but he's just such a talented writer and creator. And what I think I've been inspired by from his work is his ability to take challenging or maybe intimidating topics and make them entertaining. So like The Good Place is my favorite show of all time. And the show is largely about moral philosophy. And I was able to learn about moral philosophy by watching this really silly sitcom. And I think that's just so awesome. And I think that that's something I get really inspired by when I say, all right, how do I make climate change fun for people? Um, if he can do it with moral philosophy. I can certainly do it with this. Oh, that is such a good show. I, I, I actually didn't see the last season of it, so I need to finish. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing show. And the last season even gets into some philosophy concepts that hadn't come up yet. And it's just so, so fascinating. Um, which, uh, well, are there any sustainable brands in the, uh, in the fashion industry that you would recommend or that 
you kind of lean toward? I know you don't shop, but if you had to shop. I really couldn't tell you. And I think that it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't shop a ton, but also I really tend to look at these issues from a much more holistic perspective of how can there be change made across an entire industry or across an entire country or that sort of thing. And certainly there's a lot to learn from maybe specific brands or specific communities or what have you, but it just hasn't been research that I've done on this particular topic. But I will say that it's pretty easy to figure out if a brand is fast fashion versus if it's, uh, I guess, slow fashion is the word that they use. And if you know that much, if you can, even if a piece of clothing is a little more expensive, right, that's a sign that it's probably going to be a bit sturdier and it's going to probably be made more ethically. And obviously you can ask questions to know for sure, but I think there are simple things that you can do as a consumer that might not require quite as much knowledge on specific brands, but also i I mean, if that's something people are interested in, I encourage them to do research on that because I'm sure everyone has different priorities as to what they would want out of a clothing brand. Valid. Basics, dresses, shoes, could go on and on. Um, Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I feel like we have talked about so many awesome things. Yeah, I think so. Um, Thank you so much for having me. And if uh, I can do my plug, if you want to check out The Sweaty Penguin, we are on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. We are on pbs.org slash Promise. If you want to support the show even further, uh, I encourage you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Sweaty Penguin. There you can get merch, bonus content, uh, whatever else. Uh, you want. And then also, like I said before, if you have any questions about climate change, sustainability, whatever's going on in the news, feel free to hit us up on any of our social media, our Patreon, our website. You can stalk me on Facebook and hit me there. I really don't care. Um, But yeah, we will get your questions featured on the show. We always love to answer people's questions. So do, do send those in. Awesome. I will definitely be checking out episode 16 to, uh, to get started. I'm excited. Awesome. And uh, I just realized Fast Fashion was episode 16 of our Friday deep dive. So I guess that's a lucky number for us. <laughs> All right. Well, um, awesome meeting you. And um, yeah, thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Cool. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Bye. A huge thank you to Ethan Brown of The Sweaty Penguin. I say let's all go out and support his fun and unique approach to sharing stories and climate change by following his podcast. So you can find out more about The Sweaty Penguin at www.thesweatypenguin.com and also follow them on Instagram and find their podcast anywhere you get your podcasts by the same name, the sweaty penguin. Thank you so much for listening. And that's a wrap.
Hey, this is Erin in St. Augustine, Florida. ES Now is a Holding Court production and is written and produced by Courtney Berenger. The music is by Parker Ainsworth, fact-checked by Justin Howard, and a very special thanks to Alexandra Shook.